unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Beshev. On February 24th, the world will commemorate the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The ongoing war has fueled considerable debate among foreign policy analysts about the long-term consequences for the nature and evolution of global order. In the wake of the ongoing conflict, few relationships have been as hotly debated as ties between India and Russia. In the pages of Foreign Affairs, two of the best strategic minds working on Indian foreign policy, Hapiman Jacob of JNU in the Council for Strategic and Defense Research, and Samir Lalwani of the U.S. Institute of Peace, have engaged in a serious, constructive debate on what the future holds in store for India's relations with Russia. Hapiman argues that we're seeing the beginning of a decoupling between Russia and India, while Samir is skeptical. He envisions a future in which Russia-India relations, while perhaps declining, exhibit significant resilience. To move this debate from print to audio, I'm pleased to welcome Happymon and Samir to the podcast. Gentlemen, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. So, Happymon, I want to start with you, and I want to rewind to September 2022. You had a piece for Foreign Affairs in which you wrote the following, and I just want to quote, India is not backing Russia's invasion, nor is it simply balancing between two major powers. Instead, a subtle but major shift is underway. India's slow but inevitable decoupling from Russia, end quote. And in that piece, you actually argued that this decoupling that we're seeing between India and Russia actually preceded the invasion. So maybe this is a good place to start. Tell us a little bit about the signs of decoupling that you could already discern even before uh, you know, February of last year. Thank you, Milan, uh, for that for that question. I think there are several uh, interlinked reasons as to why Indians were rethinking its, uh, their relationship with Russia. I think, first of all, the um, sheer force of geopolitical realities uh, were driving a wedge between um, Russia and India. To begin with, that is there is a China factor. I think that's something that one cannot miss. Um, there is a growing proximity between China and Russia, even before the war. And that I think that sort of uh, invariably takes India away from from Russia. Um, just look at the trade figures between Russia and China and between India and Russia even before the war started. The second part, of course, uh, of the geopolitical picture is the growing proximity between United States and India, United States and India and, and, and the Western countries. Uh, the the anti-Americanism, uh, the staple of the Indian strategic elite, I argue, um, you know, has been sort of shrinking over over the, over the last uh, many years. Um, the the China threat, in many ways, has quickened India's journey towards the United States and its allies. Um, um, you know, spin it any way um, you 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 like, but the reality is that the Quad and the and the key objective of the Indo-Pacific is basically to balance China. It is it is it is targeted at, uh, targeted at China. Um, the weapons imports have also been reducing, as I, as I argued in my piece from 2012 to 2021. Um, you're looking at the uh, share of Indian weapons almost halving. Um, so that that's another indication of of this. Also, look at, let's look at the geoeconomic realities. And very quickly, um, if you look at um, the India-Russia trade before the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, um, Russia's exports to India excluding weapons, of course, were less than six billion U.S. dollars before the Ukraine war. Um, the, the By comparison, for example, uh, Russia's two-way trade with China was over $100 billion in 2020. 
India US trade was something like 120 billion dollars in in 2020. Um, the Russian investment in India, for example, was just 1.26 billion from 2000 to 2021. What really are we talking about? So I think there is a trade imbalance. There is no investment. Um, in, in whichever way you look at it, and finally, there is also the political reality of um, a dwindling relationship. Um, how many fewer than I think 30,000 Indians live in Russia? Uh, fewer Russians, uh, fewer Indians speak Russia today than did during the Cold War years. Uh, by comparison, for example, India-U.S. trade was 157 billion in 2021. 4.2 million people of Indian origin live in the United States of America. So I think um, if you look at it in a historical perspective, the last 10 years or so, you're looking at signs of a relationship that is losing its steam in many ways, except for, uh, let's say, um, uh, military hardware, which itself was reducing um, in the last 10 years. Um, Samir, let me turn to you. You had a piece more recently in Foreign Affairs, which was kind of uh, poised as a, as, a, as a kind of response to Happy Mon. And, and, and you wrote that, look, in the research that you've been doing, despite the force of Western sanctions, Indian national security officials still believe in Russia's staying power, right? And so we're going to get into the specifics of the Russia-India relationship in a second, but just at a kind of broad level, tell us what gives Indian officials the confidence that, you know, whatever obstacles they may be experiencing today, Russia is going to remain an important strategic partner, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Milan, I, I think um, I was picking this up in several um, visits to India. So I think the arguments basically went along the lines of Russia still has institutional power um, in geopolitics, it still has a veto of the UN uh, in the UN Security Council. By dint of geography, it still has tremendous influence in Eurasia, um, Central Asia, which is important to India, but also from Europe to East Asia. Um, it's a landmass capable of balancing China. And despite myself agreeing with Hapiman that I think that there's an inherent um, a shift happening underway between Russia and China's relationship. That, should, that is inimical to Indian interests, I was actually finding that a lot of Indian strategic thinkers, especially sort of close to government, uh, did not believe that. They thought there were several wedges that remained that would preclude uh, a deep Russia-China relationship, whether it was Central Asia, the Arctic, um, Russia's sort of sense of status. Um, so for all these reasons, and then the most sort of critical ones, Russia is sort of a major superpower when it comes to natural mineral resources, oil and gas. Uh, and it's a chief supplier of Indian arms, both uh, current and future, but historically, which has sort of a long tail. So the sustainment requirements for India's uh, existing military force would still continue to depend on Russia, I would argue, for decades. Happy, yeah, go, go ahead, Happy Man. You want to respond to that? You know, I mean, I, I, I sort of uh, see this logic that um, um, Samir is making about how the Indian strategic elite views Russia as an important partner. Um, let, let me put it this way. I think if you were to sort of uh, uh, break it down, India needs Russia for three things. One, uh, for defense equipment. Um, two, it needs Russia for UNSC, as Samir correctly pointed out. And third, uh, it also needs um, Russia for continental geopolitical purposes, right? I mean, let's sort of look at each of them. Um, as far as weapon systems are concerned, after the war, um, in the wake of the war, you're looking at Russia's inability to perhaps provide what India needs. And in any case, India has been looking at diversification uh, even before the war started. Um, so, so that, so, and, and you know, today 
um, um, say, France or, um, um, or, or Israel, the United States of America, or even South Korea for that matter, I think they are probably going to be uh, major uh, providers of the Indian uh, defense, uh, defense needs. The UNSC question, uh, right. I mean, um, Russia has consistently stood by India for most practical purposes as far as uh, UNSC is concerned. But there are today other uh, players on board. France is an example. Uh, you know, in fact, both France and Russia uh, did not um, condemn India at the time of the 1998 uh, uh, nuclear test. So um, there are other players who may be able to fulfill that particular need of India. And thirdly, uh, coming to the geo continental geopolitical uh, uh, requirements that uh, India has in terms of uh, the partnership with Russia. Um, I think in the wake of the war, you're looking at a situation where Russians' influence in Eurasia is uh, dwindling significantly. And, and that vacuum is being um, sort of filled by the Chinese. So, um, in fact, when, when Putin came to India in 2021, December, uh, there was a lot of there were a lot of agreements that were signed between the two sides about uh, joint collaboration in Eurasia, in in, in Afghanistan, etc. Most of these have actually evaporated today. So I think um, Samir is correct, but I think uh, I would sort of say that this is perhaps a pre-war assessment of the Indian strategic elite. Uh, I think this will have to undergo, or perhaps is undergoing a, a, a change uh, change today. Happy Mon, let me just kind of push you on one element. Um, you know, in your foreign affairs piece, you note that, look, between 2012 and 2021, the share of Russian weaponry in India's overall arsenal shrank by nearly half, right? Which is pretty striking. If if you go back to some of Samir's earlier work, though, uh, this is work that came out of the Stimson Center. We'll link to this in the show notes. You know, one of the points he's made is, look, the flows might be declining. But India still has to grapple with an overwhelming stock of Russian military hardware, right? And that stock needs to be maintained, it needs to be serviced, it needs to be equipped and upgraded, so on and so forth. So, so you know, do we need to make that distinction between flows and stocks? Okay, let me, let me put it this way. I'm going to sort of answer that question um, <laughs> rather provocatively. Uh, yes, um, India does stores its uh, spares um, um, from Russia. Uh, it has to, um, and this cannot be undone overnight. Um, but there is, I think, a clear diversification of um, sources in general, and also even spares are even the spares are being 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 brought from uh, elsewhere, uh, including Ukraine, actually. Uh, so it is not as if um, the Russians are going to say tomorrow um, that uh, we are not going to give you the spares, we are not going to service them, we are not going to equip them. I think that's perhaps the wrong way of looking at it. The Russians are, uh, if the Russians don't supply things, others are going to keep, others are going to come in. One and two, the Russians need the Indian money as much as Indians need the Russian uh, equipment. And finally, I think the significant question is, it's a, it's a transactional relationship, right? I think the significant question that Samir um, and, and correctly poses is, whether it leads to some kind of influ Russian influence on Indian strategic decision-making. Now, Samir seems to argue that it doesn't. I, my, my sort of um, argument is it doesn't, uh, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't uh, seem to curtail India's strategic autonomy. So even if we have to, Indians have to uh, depend on the Russians for X, Y, Z, uh, the Russians are not going to cut that off because the Russians need to maintain that for, for their own purposes. And if, if they do, occasionally others will kick in. And thirdly, there is a fear of this, um, um, you know, equipment or spares not going to continue to come to India in future because of the war. 
Samir, let me let me ask you to weigh in on this. I mean, you know, the point Happy Mon makes is, is that look, India's current dependence on Russian weaponry doesn't really curtail its freedom to make autonomous strategic decisions, right? And at the end of the day, as you pointed out, this is a question of leverage, right? Um, in your assessment, how much leverage does Russia actually wield over India on account of the defense relationship and and, and other things too? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the truth will, the, the only people who really know this are probably Indian policymakers. So, so from the outside, I've observed that Russia has uh, exerted leverage in the past uh, even prior to this war, principally though financially through price gouging, um, and and there are sort of accounts of this um, uh, on sort of spares and system being delayed until prices were met. But I think uh, I've observed that India has really pulled some punches over the last year, um, and the proof of sort of Russian leverage is in the delta between what Indians say to the U.S. and the West privately, and what they say what they believe they can say publicly and on the record. So when you look at their UN voting record. Um, India can't even cast a vote on a non-binding UN resolution condemning um, violations of sovereignty, uh, that sort of condemning Russian violations of sovereignty. Um, a UN resolution is not binding. It's, 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 it's an expression of opinion. And it, it seems to me that Indian policymakers are averse to even expressing that opinion in such a public um, and sort of institutionalized forum. They can't certainly can't participate in economic sanctions or price caps uh, with the rest of the G7. Uh, and Raja Mohan made this really compelling argument that India's sort of future lies with the G7 turning into a G10 rather than um, sort of its, its uh, the sort of global South ambitions. But the G7 is going in a totally different direction. India, what, even if it wants to, I don't think can do that. Um, and it can't provide supplies and capabilities to help support an embattled state uh, who is a supplier of Indian defense capabilities uh, in, in terms of defending its sovereignty. So so I do think India is hamstrung. I don't. I don't blame India's choices. I, I think um, Russian leverage is sufficient that it makes sense for India to to um, hold back here. But um, I do think Russian leverage is is pretty demonstrable over this past year. So, Samir, you know, j- just to emphasize the the point you made. I mean, I've observed if you look at the debates going on at the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva, for instance. Uh, the Indians have abstained even on the question of having a debate about debating a resolution, right? Uh, uh, you know, condemning the the Russian invasion, right? So even if you chose to uh, abstain on the final censor resolution, they've even abstained from from opening a debate, which I find interesting. But 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 let me just kind of push you a little bit on the defense issue, right? And and pick up where Happy Mon left off because. You know, you acknowledge that, look, India is trying to diversify its arms imports, right? It wants to build up its own indigenous capabilities, number one. Um, But at the end of the day, it's still going to need Russia for several critical technologies, at least for the years to come. And I'm wondering if you could kind of tell us, you know, in concrete terms, what are the kinds of Russian defense hardware India is going to remain reliant on, at least, you know, in the kind of medium term outlook? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think... There are two, two, maybe two classes of capabilities. Sort of one is the set of things that India has purchased or in the process of, of, of acquiring that are pretty advanced, complex systems. For the Air Force, that's the uh, Su-30 MKI and the S-400 air defense system. For the Navy, it's the stealth frigates and um, a future lease uh, uh, nuclear submarine. And for the Army, it's T-90 tanks and long-range artillery like the Smirch MLRS. 
So those are capabilities that I think will last for another 20, 30 years in the Indian inventory and will need support, sustainment, overhauls, uh, life grade, you know, life grade extensions, uh, life extensions. But then there's another class of capabilities that India is developing in the future that are pretty strategic capabilities. So one is the BrahMos cruise missile. And the BrahMos program is not just sort of a um, uh, uh, ground-to-ground through the um, cruise missile, but it's also being iterated for air-to-air um, operations. There's a hypersonic sort of program that's being developed out of this. And this is a joint venture between Indian and Russian companies uh, that though heavily relies on Russian propulsion and the Russian ramjet technology. And I think if India wants to develop this, which it should, because these are pretty advanced capabilities, it's going to rely on on uh, Russian exports for quite a long time, unless it can somehow um, re-engineer that ramjet capability, which they haven't been able to do for 25 years. The second big area for strategic capabilities for me is is India's future SSBN program. It's it's ballistic nuclear submarine program because the nuclear propulsion was really derived from a lot of Russian science technology cooperation and Russian engineering. And I think India's sort of second strike capability deterrence is based on having uh, a robust SSBN fleet for for boats in the water um, uh, over the next 20, 30 years. And it's going to need Russian engineering, as far as I can tell, to sort of perfect the uh, the nuclear reactors on board. You know, Habimon, I, I want to kind of just shift this debate a little bit. Um, you know, Samir talked about the kind of strategic elite in Delhi and what what their views might be, and you commented upon that as well. Uh, you, you know, you 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 write in your piece that look when when India is are is thinking about. Uh, there's future strategic partnerships, right? Russia is referred to in the past tense, right? India is, uh, the United States is very much in the future. Um, what about the kind of proverbial amadmi, right? The, the common person, right? You know, Samir's pointed out, look, a majority of Indians surveyed in a July poll refused to describe the Russian invasion of Ukraine as wrong. Um, do you think when it comes to the the matter of public opinion, that the views of the Indian public uh, are, are also very clear in terms of, you know, what is in the past and what is in the future? I, I think that's 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 an interesting way of uh, looking at it, what the Ahmadmi uh, thinks about it. I mean, going by the going by the survey, I, I agree that Indians um, can be emotional about uh, about Russia. Um, Indians are an emotional people. But I think when when pragmatism and opportunities uh, kick in, uh, they're going to take a very, very different uh, direction. The policymakers, are, policymakers are going to take a very different direction altogether. The reality is that there is no bad blood in the relationship between Moscow and New Delhi. I think that's 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 the that's a foundational uh, point here, right? I mean, it, what is what is driving a wedge between India and Russia is not um, a bilateral bilateral, bilateral issue. Uh, it is not any bilateral bad blood. It is the systemic factors that are driving the relationship apart. Now, neither can Russia nor can India control these systemic factors. And I said, as I said earlier, China is is, is a uh, big aspect in that sort of systematic uh, systemic uh, sort of um, uh, factors that are driving a wedge between India, India, India and Russia. So the India-Russia relationship is a cozy one, but not one of any great strategic consequence, nor can it help India address its biggest strategic threat today, which is China. Um, so I think the Aadmami, Aam Aadmi in India does not really see the 
systemic or the strategic factors as it were. The strategic elites, elites do. Although I, I do get uh, the argument that Samir is making that even the strategic elites seem to uh, think in a particular uh, particular direction. But I, I think, at least I'm of the opinion that the, the beliefs of the Indian strategic elite about the importance of a Russia-India strategic partnership perhaps uh, dates back to the pre-war uh, years and not really in the wake of the war. Uh, Samir, go ahead. Can I can just say one thing, Milan, which is that I, I mean, I also agree with, with Haviman that I think there is a very clear realist logic uh, and a systemic logic for India realignments. <clears throat> but it's also important to remember that leaders and states don't always sort of uh, hew to those logics at times. Um, I've been uh, listening to a podcast about a really interesting case of the Soviet Union's collaboration with Weimar, Weimar Germany uh, in the 1920s and 30s uh, that sort of basically helped German rearmaments, uh, even though the Soviets believed that Germans were that Germany was going to be the greatest threat to it. And so there's sort of really bizarre choices that leaders make, maybe for near-term interests uh, that have logics of their own that defy systemic logics. And so I, I'm not necessarily sort of saying that is what's happening here, but I, I would caution us sort of looking at sort of the systemic realities and saying this is sort of where India is going. I still think sort of the near-term logics are driving them in directions that are um, orthogonal to uh, that realist logic. So, Samir, we got to work on your podcasting habits, man. These are really heavy podcasts <laughs> you're listening to. <laughs> Russia-Weimar Republic collaboration. Uh, you know, Happy Mon, there's one thing I, that, that we didn't get to earlier, and I, I just want to come back to it because I thought it was an important part of your piece, right? Where, you know, as you're making the case that Delhi is slowly extracting itself from dependence on Moscow, there is an aberration, which is this issue of energy. Right. Where, yes, on the defense front, you can see the trend lines are very clear. Um, but the opposite appears to be the case on the energy front. Right. We're, we're seeing India importing record amounts of Russian crude and Russia was never a particularly significant uh, energy supplier prior to this conflict. Do you think that energy imports inhibit this process of Russia, India decoupling? You know, I think energy imports is a function of opportunism opportunism and necessity uh, let's put it that way it's it's necessity because india wants cheap energy and opportunism because it is available from russia so until recently for example uh, europe was perhaps the biggest uh, russian energy consumer so that i mean our foreign minister keeps talking about that even today india buys russian crude processes it and sells it to the rest of the world including the europeans and, and this particular activity is exempt from sanctions, right? So there is also increase in trade between India and Russia. Um, and Indians are actually, the Indian government is actually supporting uh, that because they want to reduce the trade deficit between India and Russia. Um, so if tomorrow there is no discount from Russia, uh, Indians will stop buying Russian energy. And the Russians do know that. Uh, and the Russians will, and the Indians will go for cheaper options available in the market. Um, so I think the energy purchase from the thriving energy purchase from Russia by India is hardly an indicator of a thriving relationship. Um, if, I, if I may just take a second um, minute to go back to one of the earlier points uh, that was that was raised by by Samir, and, and, and I think that's an intellectually stimulating question, right? India did pull its punches um, vis-a-vis Russia last year. Um, let, let me let me put that somewhat. Um, somewhat, quote-unquote, simplistically. Um, I think 
India, India can, um, India is in a position to play both sides, uh, the Russian side and the US slash Ukraine slash Western side, uh, because playing both sides really doesn't hurt India in any, any, any particular way. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. Samir, let me, let me just kind of, you know... Uh press you on this a little bit right which is this question of costs right i think i think it's a it is a really interesting puzzle i think right which is you know what would it take to see costs imposed i mean you know on the domestic front we didn't see much of a peep after article 370 uh you look at the events of the last week with the raids on the bbc by the income tax authorities uh and because of the indian purchase of boeing jets uh, there was no condemnation there was frankly the opposite and so in the larger scheme of this multi-alignment that the foreign minister talks so eloquently about um, do, do you think there is a danger of India coming up uh, to a kind of third rail uh, and potentially stepping on that? Um, or do you think that the structure of geopolitics essentially are giving it the equivalent of a free a free pass? Yeah, well, I, mean, I think, again, structure is what we make of it. So I think there is a natural opportunity for India to play both sides so, so long as it does the things that are of strategic importance uh, to its partners that it's playing, right? So when, when it comes to the United States, it has a long history of tolerating um, sort of whether internal uh, divergences or external divergences, both during the Cold War, all our East Asian allies were autocratic regimes. We were, we were comfortable with that. Um, we've seen in sort of recent years, a number of like sort of key US allies, both treaty and sort of effective, ally, effective allies, um, backslide in sort of democratic practices, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Pakistan for a long time. And the U.S. is able to get past that so long as there's a strategic and material contribution to something meaningful. In this case with India, it's going to be about China. I think we all know that. Um, they, I think the United States understands sort of how important India can be towards China, but the real test is going to be whether it becomes a sort of potential contribution to an actual and ongoing contribution to certain missions. And that will be, um, I think that, I think we're seeing evidence of that in very, in re, very recently, uh, we're seeing a lot of evidence of that, uh, but it'll still have to materialize over years. And if that's the case, I think it's much easier for a member of Congress to say, yeah, we don't love what's happening with India's behavior towards Russia or internally, but um, they are a critical frontline partner or ally in, in sort of the efforts to balance and deter China. And that's, that takes precedence. I think most members of Congress are comfortable with that proposition most sort of you know um, policymakers in the US government are as well so long as that's actually the case you know, Samir before we completely move on from the kind of defense side of the house right um, you know uh, both you and happy Mon in various ways have discussed the fact that look the reliability of Russian weapon supplies is going to be a major factor 
shaping, you know, how this all washes out, right? So we've now experienced almost one year of, of war. Um, how much do you think supply chain disruptions have affected defense capabilities on the Indian side? By, by, by that, of course, I mean Russian supply chain disruptions. This is a tricky one because um, when you talk to U.S. officials, and they've sort of said this on the record as well, they expected it to be deeply disruptive because of the sanctions, both financial as well as techno- uh, technology sanctions on Russia that were supposed to inhibit um, Russia's ability to supply, sustain, and uh, fulfill sort of existing orders for India. Um, you hear reports of it coming out of India, but they typically tend to be anonymous sources uh, sharing it with news reports and not public officials saying this openly. Uh, so there was a report recently about how 70% of Indian T-72s may not be ready for combat, in part because of um, sort of shortfalls in, in spares. Um, but the tricky part is uh, it's unclear if this is what's uniquely having an effect on Indian military readiness and serviceability or if it's a host of other things that always have affected Indian readiness and serviceability. I had this question with a colleague um, some time ago where I was saying, look, it looks, seems like you're going to have a hard time uh, sort of doing your life extensions on your Su-30s, and it's going to bring serviceability down. And it's like, yeah, but serviceability of Su-30s has always been around 40 50% anyways. We're used to living with a level of vulnerability and low readiness. And so the question is not only sort of whether it's disrupting supply chains, but whether it's having the political effect that the U.S. and the West are expected to have on India, which is a desire for divestment and total overhaul. And I don't think that's happening at all. Uh, happy, man. Oh, very quickly, I mean, I, I don't want to take uh, uh, too much time on this particular question, but, you know, I think I, I, I keep talking to a lot of retired folks, um, if not people in, in service. And my feeling is that there is a there's an abiding concern in the Indian system about the performance of the Russian systems in the um, current war, uh, one, and two, the unavailability of the Russian systems and spares um, because of the war. Um, That also um, affects India's war preparedness in some ways at a time when China is uh, nibbling on the Indian territory uh, along the line of active control. So I think these, these, are, these are concerns that uh, uh, that are real and that, that are already creeping into the Indian, Indian thinking. Uh, one, one more quick point, and that is about, uh, you know, and I, I, I agree. Uh, uh, I agree with what Samir uh, said, which is it will take time for us, a long time for India to sort of divorce and move away from the Russian system. But, but take a look at uh, what the Ukrainians have done. Uh, they have also been using uh, Soviet era slash Russian origin um, sort of weapon systems, but in the in a manner of uh, months, uh, in a matter of months, they have they have sort of moved on in in, in big ways. Of course, that's, that's an existential moment. There's no comparison with what India is facing. But what I'm trying to say is that uh, it is not impossible to uh, move away should there be an appetite for it. And and <laughs> Samir may be right. There may not be that sort of a big appetite in India to move on that quickly. And if there are other suppliers um, that India can find for alternative systems. Um, so why the lock-in period is a good argument. Um, I, um, and I think it may actually be a case in the Indian, in the, in the Indian scenario 
um, that th- there are there are ways of circumventing that. I just want to sort of put that on the table. You know, one of the issues which has uh, been swirling around this conversation is this question of uh, Russia, China, and India, right? And I want to spend a few minutes on that kind of triangle, right? Uh, Happymon, you know, in Samir's essay, he notes that look, when you talk to Indian planners. Uh, there is a belief that India can be a wedge between Russia and China, right? Uh, which would allow Moscow to retain some semblance of autonomy in its foreign policy and not necessarily settle for being a junior partner to Beijing, right? So again, 12 months into this, how do you think this bet is working out? Do we see any concrete signs over the past year of Russia and China actually coming closer together? You know, I think um, there's a lot of merit in that argument. And I, I think this particular thinking that the Russian Indians could potentially drive a wedge between uh, China and Russia uh, did have some takers in India. But I think that was before the war. Um, if, you, if you look at, uh, in fact, there were even uh, people in India who suggested um, that Russia could potentially diffuse tensions between India and China should there be, um, you know, a, a conflict along the line of control between the two sides. Uh, but I think the um, if, if you look at the 2021 uh, visit of President Putin to India uh, for the summit, um, the, 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 the agreements signed between the two sides also showed that um, they wanted to actually um, do something together in Central Asia and in, 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 in um, uh, Afghanistan, all of which was in some ways indirectly intended to address the expansion of the Chinese sphere of influence in the region. The Russians were also very concerned about that. But I think the war has changed everything and so dramatically. So Russia-China trade, the, the, the volume of that trade, Russia's dependence on China, and the, and just a huge geo, geographic distance between Russia and India would mean that India won't be in a position going forward to drive a wedge between these two countries. India would love it if it could. Uh, even the Russians probably would love it. But that only exists at the level of hope. And unfortunately, hope it's not a great approach to strategic planning, right? You know, Samir, I, I want to just kind of, you know, piggyback on this by asking you, you know, there has been a lot of talk in Washington circles about how Washington can use this particular moment to not only wean Russia, uh, excuse me, India off Russian arms, but also kind of consolidate this anti-China, you know, position that India finds itself in, right? And 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 one of the ideas that's been kind of thrown out there, in fact, my colleague Ashley Tellis has put it out there, is this idea of you know bringing together the United States, France, and India in a kind of AUKUS-like deal to help power, um, you know, the next generation of, 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 of nuclear submarines and nuclear generators for, 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 for India. Um, is this a viable idea? Are people talking about this? I mean, do you think that this is something that's captured the imagination of folks who are sitting in the bowels of the Pentagon? Uh, yeah. I, so let me, let me just pick up on one thing that Happy Man said from just before on the, um, the Russia-China relationship. I think actually I fully agree with him on his assessment. Uh, I think I personally have been sympathetic to this wedge strategy. Um, And I think the United States has sort of had thought about it for a long time. I think even the Biden administration thought about it, but uh, it doesn't seem to have been borne out. I think it's been puzzling actually how much Russia is willing to submit itself as a junior partner, as a little brother to China. I was actually talking to some uh, Russia analysts about this. They're also sort of puzzled because it's not necessarily that they're operating under 
uh, Russian interests, but rather that there is a whole bunch of uh, m- financial and monetary incentives um, to sort of, you know, uh, sell off parts of Siberia, not actually, but in terms of sort of like investments, uh, Chinese immigration, um, and sort of mutual interest in undermining the U.S. sort of unipol. So there is puzzling sort of alignment there. That said, I just came back from a trip to India where I heard a fairly senior official say, uh, quote unquote, the, the idea that Russia would fall under the thumb of any country is to me inconceivable. So while I agree with Hoffman's assessment, I'm not convinced that senior Indian policymakers all agree with that. And that's maybe sort of the divergence there. On this question of um, uh, sort of a, uh, an AUKUS like for, for India, I think the, the term that Ashley uses, uh, the acronym is INFRAS, because uh, it would sort of require some sort of US support for India, France, uh, nuclear submarine program. Um, so the reason I think it's l- unlikely, not just because of sort of the political geopolitics around and the challenges or U.S. nonproliferation policy, things like that, is that it would really set back India's SSBN program by, I think, two to three decades. And I think that would be detrimental to what India is trying to achieve in terms of a, a secure second strike capability while China's nuclear arsenal is expanding. Basically, as I understand it, I'm not a, a submarine expert, but if you change the the nuclear reactor on a submarine, it will require you to change a whole bunch of elements of, re- of the design of the submarine, particularly the hull, in order to reduce the quieting um, of, a, of a submarine. And doing so, I think basically you'd have to at least expand the hull. I looked at sort of the, the figures. Indian hulls are about half the size of French submarine hulls. So they'd have to basically scrap all their existing hulls and build new ones. And that's a 20, 30-year program and extremely expensive. So I, while it's appealing to sort of be able to do this swap, um, I think the cost would be prohibitive for India unless there's some sort of thing that, as you know, having been alluded to, Ukraine's able to sort of swap out a bunch of kit, in part because they have a Lend-Lease Act supported by the United States. It's bankrolled by Western Europe and the United States. If India gets that opportunity, I'm sure that India would be willing to uh, substitute a lot of um, arms. But in the absence of that, I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Uh, I, I think it's cost prohibitive. You know, there's a question that I kind of want to pose to both of you as we kind of wrap up this conversation, and it's really about thinking about the future, right? Um, If you if you read the media, particularly the some of the Western media, there is this sense that look, India has positioned itself as an as an honest broker that can actually work its relationships with both Russia. United States, Ukraine, to help bring about a truce of some kind in this conflict, right? And I'm curious, Happy Mom, maybe I'll start with you. You know, what do you think the prospects are of India actually playing a leading role in trying to negotiate some future settlement of this, you know, very hot ongoing dispute? The sense I'm getting, uh, Milan, uh, sitting in Delhi, is that um, that is that is a very unlikely scenario where India takes an active um, step in um, diffusing the tensions or, or ending this war. Um, I think to begin with, India has perceived us too close to Russia. Um, I'm not so sure if there is enough goodwill um, in Ukraine that India has today uh, to sort of pull this off. Of late, you've seen uh, there is a conversation between Zelensky and Mr. Modi. There has been conversations between Mr. Dovell and the chief of staff in and Ukraine. All of those conversations have been happening, but I don't think the relationship is that great for India to, um, you know, um, um, India to manage some sort of a 
um, a mediator's role in 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 this in this world. One. Um, secondly, I think there may be a, an unspoken desire in India uh, to to play the uh, to play as uh, a mediator's role in this world. But I think in New Delhi, perhaps lacks the diplomatic and political capital and wherewithal to 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 do that. Um, New Delhi is today busy with um, you know the uh, the, gra- the great Indian wedding that we are organizing called G20 uh, summit and, uh, um, and and the SUO summit and whatnot. And uh, um, so I think I think the, the political and diplomatic um, um, focus is on that and not on the more substantive issue of conflict resolution as it is. And I think finally um, um, there is also uh, the, the the reality is that at some level, uh, Mr. Modi and the government are going to look at the. Um, um, the priorities and the priority of this government is to win the elections next year. So I don't, do, I don't think they would want to invest in uh, their political and diplomatic capital in something that may not really see any success at the end of the day. So the answer, in some ways, therefore, is uh, it's desirable, but it's unlikely. And Samir, do you broadly agree with that assessment? You know, desirable but unlikely, given where we are. You know, February twenty twenty three. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anyone disputes the desirability. The unlikely, I would say, is probably true in terms of the actual brokering. But I think there's a lot of facilitating things that India can do. I've been kind of struck by um, how able India is still able to communicate um, with Russia and with Putin, who I think has very few sort of touch points and, and sort of, uh, communications links uh, to the world. So to the degree that India is able to communicate with Putin about the costs and the, and the consequences uh, and sort of that, that future for Russia. I think that would be extremely appreciated and valued by um, a number of parties on the other side. And I think, to be honest, uh, I've noticed a sort of a change in tenor in Washington about appreciating uh, the voice of the global South that India has been speaking up for and saying, look, there are, there are long-term consequences. I appreciate the need to bring Russia to its knees and to defend sovereignty at all costs. But uh, there are sort of second and third order effects that are destroying a lot of countries around the world. And I think the U.S. is taking notice of that. So India can be a valuable communicator. I also think it can, if uh, at the end of the day, these decisions are going to be made by Russia and Ukraine and to some degree sort of U.S. and NATO's backing of Ukraine. But if there is an agreement, I think India can offer a valuable supporting mechanism, whether it's sort of ceasefire monitoring uh, or even sort of future election observations. I think it is a trusted party. Uh, certainly not totally aloof, but a trusted party by both sides for different reasons. And so to the degree it can at least offer um, to provide sort of that, uh, not necessarily enforcement, but um, sort of information and monitoring uh, role, I think it would be appreciated. I think it could actually uh, gain a lot of um, uh, credit and goodwill from, from countries on both sides. Uh, all right, Samir, uh, you know, Happy Month started this whole uh, debate in September 2022, so I'm going to give you the last word. Last time you were on this podcast, I checked, it was September of 2021, and we discussed the evergreen issue of CATSA sanctions. This is the threat <laughs> of sanctions on India imposed by the United States uh, that would be invoked because of India's purchase, controversial purchase of the S-400. Um, India has been banking on a waiver uh, that would inoculate them for these sanctions. That waiver has not come. Uh, just give us a very quick update. You know, here we are, we, 15 months after we talked. Are, are things basically status quo? You know, it's funny. I haven't heard anyone talk about Katz's sanctions in about six months. Um, they still they are still plausible in the background. There was a House resolution, or I think it was part of the NDA, that said... Um, 
India should be absolved of it, but it was simply a resolution that was attached to the, uh, the Defense Authorization Act. It wasn't binding by any means. So the administration still has to make a judgment. My understanding is that I, I think by the, the administration's silence, even though the India has sort of taken in new equipment from Russia, signed new deals, it suggests that they are willing to sort of accept this. Um, and I think one of the things hanging up a formal waiver is that there was another country that is now part of a vital part of the NATO coalition uh, that was um, sanctioned because of Katza recently. And so that is in some ways probably inhibiting the United States from being able to turn around to a non-NATO partner and say, you get a waiver. Uh, so that's that's the challenge I think the United States is facing. But I think so long as there's forward progress on, again, the things that the U.S. most cares about when it comes to China, there's an ongoing sort of Indo-Pacific maritime domain awareness initiative. Those things operationalize and come to fruition. I, I, I think I'm confident that um, Washington is going to be able to sort of get past this. All right. I lied. Happy Mon. I do have one final question to you. You know, as you think about the blossoming of U.S.-India ties, the strategic convergence that you've eloquently written about, there is a glaring issue, which is we're now at, I think, 25 months and counting without a U.S. ambassador in New Delhi. Um, is this having a material impact, do you think, on this relationship? Or do the Indians basically see this as a, you know, this is like a flash in the pan. This is not a, a, an existential issue of any kind. You know, I think, let me let me put it this way, Milan. I think the, um, the two sides are um, closest today that they have ever been in their history. Um, India, United States relationship is, um, only going ahead and only going forward. Um, as I, as I argue in my piece, when India, when Indians think of their future strategic uh, preferences and priorities, they think of the United States of America, not, 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 not Russia. Um, the reason why India is perhaps not falling in line is because India can afford not to fall in line. Uh, this is the best international, uh, international environment India could have ever asked for. Uh, could India have done this to say, when the Indo-US nuclear negotiations were going on about 15 years ago, no, India couldn't have, but it needed today can, and still be friends with the United States of America. I think there's a natural convergence between the two sides. The non-appointment of an ambassador is really not having any serious impact on that relationship. There may be some political differences between, between, between the Biden administration or Biden White House and the BJP, uh, but I don't think that has crept into uh, the establishment's view of each other, um, the, the diplomatic, political, um, on, on Indian side and, and on the other. So I think um, this, is, this is a relationship that is thriving. And in my, in my, um, despite some political differences here and there, the structural factors will ensure that this relationship thrives going forward. Samir? Just maybe a two-finger on this. You're trying to steal back the last word here. I know, right? <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to end this podcast. Uh, I, I would just say that I, I agree with Hoppingman that I don't think it's had an effect on the strategic direction of the relationship. I think that is sort of set by policymakers and, and capitals, but it might have an effect on the tactical and operational realization of some things that we're trying to move forward. So recently, the National Security Advisor, the Indian National Security Advisor, was in Washington for the launch of the initiative on critical and emerging technologies, and that's going to require a lot of. Um, uh, overcoming of bureaucratic veto points and obstacles on both our systems, or both our systems are riddled with sort of uh, veto points that we need to to navigate. And 
for that to happen, it requires sort of day-to-day engagement that I think a stature of an ambassador would certainly help. And that may be sort of, you could think of it as an opportunity cost in the relationship or a drag on the relationship that hopefully we can overcome soon. My guests on the show this week are Happy Mon Jacob and Samir Lalwani. They are respectively the authors of two great pieces in foreign affairs debating uh, the future of uh, Russia, India, U.S., China ties. Um, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure to read you, uh, a pleasure to listen to you and to have this uh, debate. You know, I think maybe the, the Indian uh, primetimes news networks uh, need to have you two gentlemen on to, to, to every night to have these sorts of foreign policy conversations. <laughs> it's, it's really been a pleasure. Thank, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having me, Lynn. Grant Thamasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help others find the show. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Production assistance comes from Nitya Love. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast